Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your neurons. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the final part of my conversation with Rodrigo Kian Quiroga about memory. But first up, here's news of driverless crashes, military plants, and crypto loyalty. Driverless crash. General Motors Cruise subsidiary is being sued because of a crash between an autonomous Chevy Bolt car that was being tested on a San Francisco highway with unusual road rules and a man riding a motorcycle. The motorbike rider Oscar Nielsen says the car started moving to the left lane. As per the lane-splitting law, he rode up next to the car to take its place. The car then aborted its lane change and suddenly moved back into his space, knocking him over. Mr. Nielsen's lawyer says that the police report supports holding General Motors responsible. The report notes that when the car started moving back into the lane now occupied by the motorbike, the Bolt's backup driver tried to grab the wheel to stop the crash. Mr. Nielsen was able to walk his bike to the side of the road before being taken for medical treatment of his neck and shoulder injuries. He's taken disability leave to treat his injuries. General Motors tell a different story. They say when the car gave up on its lane change and moved back to the right, Mr. Nielsen rode his bike right towards the car and crashed into it himself, becoming both the cause and the victim of the accident. General Motors note that the police report concludes that Mr. Nielsen was responsible for the accident for attempting to overtake and pass another vehicle on the right under conditions that did not permit that movement in safety, regardless of the other details in the report. The autonomous cruise cars have been involved in six different crashes in September 2017, which General Motors claimed were, in each case, the other driver's fault. It seems a high number of accidents for any random group of test cars to have in one month. It's possible that self-driving cars simply don't behave the way people are trained to expect cars driven by human drivers to behave. And so it's harder for human drivers to predict where self-driving cars will be next and to avoid them, even if they follow the road rules. This is thought to be the world's first lawsuit involving an autonomous car. The plan of car manufacturers and lawmakers is for self-driving cars to carry a human backup driver to prevent accidents. It will be interesting if the human backup driver required by law to sit in the cars for just such emergencies would be found to bear any legal responsibilities. The problem with any system that requires a driverless car to have a human passenger ready and trained to take over from the car if an emergency presents itself is because the human driver has nothing to do for very long periods of time, 
people inevitably zone out and stop paying attention. This means that the human backup driver is of little use in the event of an accident. Self-driving car makers need to develop a better way of avoiding accidents. Plants that are bugs. DARPA, the American Defense Advanced Research Agency, wants to use CRISPR-Cas9 synthetic biology to engineer plants to act as sensors of many different kinds, to collect information and send it to the military. In December 2017, they had a whole day presenting Advanced Plant Technology, APT. They hope to engineer plants that can sense touch, ionising radiation, pathogens, poisons, light, temperature and other stimuli. The aim is to engineer the plants with extra sensors and ability to display the information to remote sensing satellites or surveillance drones without hurting the plant's ability to survive and thrive as a living organism. And of course, plants don't need batteries and they can maintain themselves as long as they have water and sunlight. Synthetic biology has applied an engineering approach to biology by creating standard building blocks of logic and functions that can be put together like a computer program or digital electronics into an organism's DNA. Students around the world compete in the iGEM International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition, designing microbes with capabilities from engineering building blocks. DARPA's advanced plant technology will be doing exactly the same, only with plants that are visible from satellites. Plant synthetic biology has huge potential for agriculture. Apparently, previous plant experiments focused so much on the new applications that the plants didn't have enough resources left over to grow and thrive. The APT group at DARPA not only want to avoid repeating that mistake, they also want to avoid false positives by testing how their new plants will interact with the microbes, insects and other wildlife in their intended environment. The APT group suggests that they could engineer plants to indicate where landmines or unexploded bombs are buried by sensing the chemistry leaked into the soil. I know that the mimosa-sensitive plant and the Venus flytrap both sense touch and signal the rest of the plant with a spike of voltage. Perhaps you could engineer this touch sensitivity into either a hedge that changes colour or temperature when people are climbing over it or even into a lawn that tells you that soldiers are walking across it? The dancing or semaphore plant, Desmodium gyrans, responds to rhythmic sounds like music. Perhaps this capability could be engineered to detect where people are hiding but talking. The APT group plan for the initial work to be conducted in labs and greenhouses under existing US federal laws, with the final field testing conducted under the auspices of the US Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. DARPA's Advanced Plant Technology Group say that existing ground, air and space-based technology is up to the task of remotely measuring plants' temperature, chemical composition, reflectance and body plan, among other qualities, so that only the new plants need to be engineered and budgeted for. Could plants be bred to detect the small vibrations of air in speech and encode them in a way that a satellite could read? Probably not this year. Crypto loyalty. 
the University of New South Wales has partnered with Loyalty X to trial a loyalty rewards program where instead of being given loyalty points, students were offered the cryptocurrency Ethereum. Ethereum is the second most popular cryptocurrency after Bitcoin. Ethereum also has the benefit that its blockchain is Turing complete, which means that all the computers that are mining Ethereum can be used as one giant computer to run programs. Like Bitcoin, Ethereum has a price set by speculators. Loyalty X recruited 500 students for a month. For every 10 purchases made at shops on the university campus using the Unify Rewards app, students were rewarded with $5 worth of Ether. The Ether can be transferred to their personal Ethereum wallet as an investment, used to buy things online around the world, or sold for traditional fiat currency like Australian dollars at an online exchange. During the trial, Ether has traded as low as $288 and as high as $348, giving students a taste of how cryptocurrency fluctuates. If they'd held on, it went up 450% by January 2018. Loyalty X's university trial was funded by the New South Wales State Government under its Boosting Business Innovation Program. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. If you remember from last week, Professor Rodrigo Kian Quiroga is the Director of the Centre for Systems Neuroscience, the Head of Bioengineering and Research Chair at the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. He's made a lifetime study of the neurology of memory and believes that forgetting is essential for humans to be able to function. I continued my conversation with Dr. Kuroga in Leicester by Skype from Sydney. Association is how I recall things, isn't it? One thing reminds you of a memory that reminds you of another memory and another. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very beautiful, I mean, description of this by Marcel Proust in in his uh, in search of the lost time, I mean, where he he tries one biscuit that I mean, in, in one cafe, and his biscuit remembers reminds him of the biscuit that his old uh, auntie used to do when he was a kid, and that reminds him of this house, the house of his auntie, and the garden and the church, and so on. And then Marcel Proust starts to somehow recall all his childhood or a big part of his childhood, but getting like from one thing to the other through associations. To have a better memory, do we need to remember more by understanding more? I mean, you ask two things that are, for me, not, I mean, they might be contradictory to itself. If people want to remember more, how can they get a better understanding? The two things don't necessarily go together. So if you want to remember more, well, you can use, you can use mnemotechnics. I mean, you can use tricks to remember more, but that, I'm not sure that will help you much. Now, if you get to get a better understanding, that's a different story. For me, what it has to be done is you, you have to really extract meaning of things and put them into context. So, and the, the key word is again, associations. So if you get a fact, I mean, if you are attending university and you learn something, 
the best you can do is to try to put this new piece of knowledge that you got within context. I mean, you can say, oh yeah, this reminds me of this other thing, or this is similar to this other thing that I learned, and this goes together with the other thing. So basically you start creating association between this new fact with other facts you already know, and these associations will create kind of like a web, a memory web that will make this memory more robust. I mean, because it's not true repetition, it's not true memotechnics, it's not that you remember the name of something. The name is not that important, but you remember the meaning of this thing and you already tie it together with the meaning of other things. And I think this putting things in context is the key component of understanding, the key component of, 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 of really uh, getting the meaning of something and putting it into context. I mean, it's, it's kind of redundant what I'm saying, but that's very different from just, just road memorization. Association is how I recall things, isn't it? One thing reminds you of a memory that reminds you of another memory and another. Yeah, I mean, actually, there's something people don't know, but it's not like going to the gym, no? It's not that, I mean, you go running and then you are better at playing football or, I don't know, you, you go and do some weights and then, I don't know, you can, you can fight better. So with memory, it's different because if you, if you learn some mnemonic techniques, they will help you just for the things you learn them for. I mean, for example, if you learn to remember numbers and operations, mathematical operations, and you become very good at that. I mean, you, you can remember, I don't know, the square root of whatever number you say, and this won't help you to remember a poem, and this won't help you to remember history books. And if you're very good at remembering history books, that won't help you to remember a poem. I mean, so the, the memory advantages that you get by training a specific technique, they are limited to this specific technique. I mean, they are not, they don't generalize. I mean, it's not that you learn a memory technique for remembering poems, and then you will be better at remember theorems. I mean, it won't, it won't work. Can you tell me about your recent research? Yeah, I mean, we, we discovered these neurons, as I say, like 10, 15 years ago that represent concepts. And, this, and this, these neurons are in, in an area that we, we know very well that is involved in memory. And recently we showed how these neurons are involved in forming memories. So we can form a memory on the fly, and we can see how these neurons encode this memory formation. Now, most of my research these days is to understand, I mean, in much better detail, how is this process of forming and recalling memories? And, and also these memories are stored by these neurons. What is exactly the type of information we store? What is the information we don't store at all and which how made up when we remember a story? And how is the process of, of recalling a story? How is the process of creating a story, of creating a story, no, but of remembering a story when it happens for the first time and, and so on? So it's basically, I mean, like, trying to understand the role of these neurons that I discover in all these memory processes. Does the act of remembering change the memory? Yeah, every time you are recalling something, you're changing it. That's called memory reconsolidation. That's very well established. Now, the thing is that if, if your first consolidation of the memories is already solid, then, yeah, you bring it back to memory, but you won't be changing it much because it's already well established. But if your first storage of the memory is labile, then when you consolidate it, I mean, yeah, then maybe you change it. So for example, imagine that we have been together at a party one year ago 
and imagine we have uh, some common friends and then you say, oh yeah, remember we went to this party and we met this guy, Paul, I mean, I don't know, I'm making up a name. And you have a memory of going to a party and meeting Paul. But then I tell you, no, no, actually Paul wasn't there. I mean, he was sick, he couldn't make it. I mean, he wanted to come, but he didn't make it. I mean, we didn't meet him. And and then you will say, oh, I thought we met him. Yeah, no, but maybe I'm confused because he, he thought, he, he told me he will go, but then he didn't show up. Yeah, maybe you're right. So basically you're bringing the memory back to consciousness and based on the information I'm giving you, you are changing it because now you will, now, I mean, from this moment, you will remember, yeah, I went to the party, but Paul was not there. Although you previously thought he was there and previously you remember that he was there, but I'm changing the memory. And maybe it's me that I'm wrong. No, maybe actually this guy Paul was there and I'm confused myself, but I managed to change your memory because I give you some conflicting information. And stage magicians can make you remember things that never happened. Well, that's not, it's, magic is it's a big, big thing. There are 2000 years of magic theory. Um, what you are saying is not the stage magic. I mean, stage magicians will not necessarily use this. Uh, but this is something, I mean, without getting much into the tricks of magicians, because I mean, I, one has to be fair and not tell exactly what we do. But I mean, sometimes magicians use this. I mean, they give information that they are somehow changing during, I mean, during the um, progression of, of, of the magic trick of the show. I mean, they may suggest exactly. So, I mean, what I love about this is that these guys, I mean, I interact a lot with magicians. I have a few magician friends and we talk a lot about that. So they are inducing some memories. But that's really, really good magicians because it's very hard to do. That that's not the main trick they use. I mean, they tend to use other other things. But 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 really good magicians. I mean, there's one very famous in Spain called Tamariz Juan Tamariz, and and he's very good at that. I mean, he's very good at putting suggestions of things that actually didn't happen. But then the way he's like introducing these suggestions make you believe something that never happened. And I think that's that's brilliant. At the other end, you have politicians trying to rewrite history and make you think they didn't say things you definitely heard them say. Yet in the modern world, we can look up recordings of what they actually said. Well, yeah. So it happens with everything. I mean, like, I'm, I mean, when I look at politics, I mean, sometimes it's... I think if these guys know how the brain works, it will be worse because, I mean, sometimes they, I don't know, you have these candidates and they threw each other's, I mean, like this, this, I don't know, these catchy phrases, these catchy lines. It's like, oh, this guy, I mean, I don't know, this guy doesn't care about poverty. And then like they, they repeat two, three times this sentence. Yeah, yeah, that's because you don't care about poverty. You care only about rich people. And then you start believing it because they're kind of like reinforcing like a fact that maybe it's not true, but the guy say it so many times that you end up having at least this unconscious feeling. Well, I guess I'm not sure, but this guy, I'm not sure he cares about poor people. I mean, and so I, I think they use, they use this trick a lot. I mean, they know that in a debate, for example, you cannot get everything that happens in the debate. And even if you get it at the time, you won't be able to remember it. So you will remember a couple of things. And maybe these flashy things are the ones that you will remember. And I think some politicians are very good at that because they will throw these, these very catchy and flashy 
phrases or a statement that they will stick into into the mind. And these are the phrases, I mean, in our days, it's even worse because these are the catchy phrases that they will be tweeted and repeated, I mean, by social networks and so on. And basically, we end up having a memory of something that happens that is very strongly biased, I mean, by, I mean, by this mechanism. And it's even worse because sometimes, I mean, if the political parties are the ones, I mean, having their management of these social media. So they will get the catchy phrase that will interpret it in some way and they will try to make it viral. So you end up getting a conclusion that maybe it's not what really happened. They make a suggestion. Yeah, but I think in this sense, I mean, that's why it's good that you make, I mean, you jump from magic to politics because I, I think in a sense they use somehow the same tricks as magicians. So again, I won't tell you the tricks as magicians use, at least the ones I know, but but there's something that they do. I mean, when they want to influence your memory, they will never make a very strong claim that will stick. Like, they, they will never say something, I mean, that is, is a very factual claim that you can say, no, no, you say that, and now you are changing it. They will try to use more kind of like soft and ambiguous claims. And then they start to bias this claim toward one way, one one thing or the other. But they will never use like a very strong claim. I mean, because they know strong claims have, are very hard to change later on. Because you, you will say, no, no, actually, you did say that. I remember you saying that. And I think maybe politicians use these similar magic tricks, no? Because if you put them against, I mean, the fact that they did say something different and it is in YouTube, well, maybe they will come up with a big statement. I mean, they won't have a strong claim, a claim denying the strong claim they made before. So, yeah, I think they they, they use ambiguity a lot to get, I mean, to get away with it. Is there anything you'd like to add? I, I think, I mean, the, the interesting point, which is the point of the book, is that yeah, maybe something we didn't we didn't touch upon, but which is like the conclusion of this, is is that. I mean, the way our brain works is quite unique because we forget a lot. Now, we humans do forget a lot. Um, and I, more recently, I'm, I'm starting wondering, it's like, well, why is that? Well, because, I mean, we use our brain to understand. And then it was interesting to compare this with artificial intelligence and with, with other animals, which is the topic of, of the last chapter of, of my book, which I think is the most interesting it's more deep philosophical discussion. And I think there's a big contrast, no? Because if you think, well, what is it that makes us humans? Why artificial intelligence is not is still not coming close to being human, to have human intelligence? Although they can beat us as chess and go and so on, but you don't have a computer that is, I mean, understanding a theorem or doing mathematics or doing philosophy yet. And I think the reason is because a computer, I mean, I mean, has a hard drive that will store memory accurately. I mean, but doesn't understand the content of with, what is within the hard drive. So and we do exactly the opposite. I mean, we don't store memory accurately. We store just a very little amount of information, but we understand it. And I think that might also be a difference with animals, because I mean, animals don't process data and don't have thoughts the way we have it, don't have this high level thinking that characterizes us. And then you may wonder, well, why, why is it that we have this level of abstraction and of conceptual thinking? And I think 
there's a key difference with other animals, which is language. And I think the role of language in evolution that differentiates us from other animals has been the fact that language allows us to consolidate and reinforce this high-level way of thinking that, for example, give rise to the type of neurons are, I mentioned, representing concepts and this, this, this extracting meaning and making associations with the meaning which characterize our thought. So I think, I mean, if, if you want us a concluding point, all this discussion, I think it, it gets very interesting because we might be touching upon, I mean, the, the, the very basic thing that makes us humans. Rodrigo Caroga, thank you very much. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure. That was the final part of my conversation with Professor Kian Kiroga talking about the brain as the forgetting machine. There's a link to his book with the show notes. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. That's how people find the show. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons in supporting the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the Community Radio Network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MBR in Nambaka Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.